on this or before I began my research on this sin, I would think of myself as someone who probably doesn't struggle with gluttony because I look at my waistline and I think to myself, I'm, I'm skinny, I'm fine, I mustn't struggle with this at all. And I look at my diet and it's reasonably healthy at points. At some points, I don't eat a lot. I don't consider myself as an overeater. So therefore, I mustn't struggle with this particular sin. But as I began to research into what gluttony actually is, I worked out that actually, gluttony is probably the one I struggle with the most. And I wonder if tonight that could be you as well. You see, our culture wants to define gluttony by simply the behavioral cues or the behavioral symptoms. So being overweight, eating unhealthy food, indulging in too much wine, getting drunk, all of these, according to our culture, are signs and symptoms of gluttony. And so that's what our world thinks. But what if, what if being overweight is too, simpli- too simplistic as a definition for diagnosing gluttony? What if skinny people and health food eaters are just as gluttonous, or if not more gluttonous, than those who indulge in fast food. Many of us within our culture in the West, we genuinely believe we don't struggle with gluttony because we don't fit in any of those categories, or many of us don't feel like we fit in those categories. But that's because we're defining it by its behavioral cues. Rebecca DeYoung, a theologian, says this, as a vice, gluttony is something habitual. It's, it's a routine, a pattern, a groove that gets worn into our character as a vice, it's a sinful habit. Gluttony is something that can be woven into our very existence every single day. It's something that gets worn into us just in the same way that anger and envy might. Gluttony is the same kind of thing. And the the reality is is the gluttony is not about what we eat or how much we eat. Gluttony is all about our posture towards eating and drinking. At the heart of gluttony is, a, is the pursuit of pleasure that comes from eating and drinking. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting to enjoy a nice succulent steak or a juicy burger. It was my birthday last weekend, the 1st of June. Just remember that for next year. Uh, and Katie took me out to a burger bar in, uh, in the city called Bar Luca. And it was honestly the best burgers I've ever had. It was so tasty and so enjoyable. It's not wrong to enjoy good food. It's not wrong to enjoy good wine or a nice cold beer after a long day's work. The issue is, is at the heart, what makes things turn into gluttony is the moment our desire for these pleasures runs out of control to the point that it begins to affect our relationship with food itself, our relationship with each other, and our relationship with God. A great illustration of gluttony at its most extreme is seen from the books and the movies The Hunger Games. Katniss Everdeen and Peter Malark from District 12 have won The Hunger Games the previous year and are on tour before the next Hunger Games begins. They visit all the districts, starting with their own district, District 12. And District 12 is, char- is characterized by its hunger, its starvation. It's a poor district. Food is hard to come by. And people are literally fighting for it every single day. They eventually make their way into the capital. And the capital is a great contrast. 
They're at President Snow's mansion and there is food and drink in abundance. And not just any kind of food, but the best food and the best drink and everyone is enjoying the feast that is there. As they begin to walk in together, they're offered this amazing food and drink. And Peter Malark just says, I just can't anymore. I'm full. I'm stuffed. And one of the hosts says to him, oh, I've got something for that and hands him a little drink. And he's a little bit confused. I don't understand. And the host says to him, oh, it it makes you sick. So you can keep on eating. And he's just kind of stunned. And then someone else says, how else are you going to be able to taste everything here? That is gluttony. That is the pleasure for food and drink run out of control, run wild, affecting how they view not just the food, but people as well. In the Hunger Games, uh, food is a status symbol where one's worth is tied up by how hungry they are. The hungry being the poor and the outcasts and the full being the privileged and wealthy. Gluttony is not so much about what it does to our bodies physically. It's about what it does to our view of food and other people. To the point in which Peter Malak remarks to Katniss on the dance floor, he says, people are starving in 12. Here, they're just throwing it up to stuff more in. Gluttony is as extreme as what we see in the Hunger Games, but it's also as subtle as the little old lady at the cafe who all she wants is her tea and really crisp toast. In C.S. Lewis' Screwtape Letters, the singer devil writes to his apprentice to say how he has deceived this older woman, this older lady, into thinking she isn't a glutton, when in fact her desires for a peculiar delicacy portray her as one. The devil writes to his junior apprentice, She is a positive terror to the hostesses and servants. She is always turning from what has been offered to her to say with a little demure, a little sigh and a smile, Oh, please, please, all I want is a cup of tea. Weak, but not too weak. And the teeniest, weeniest bit of really crisp toast. You see, because what she wants is smaller and less costly than what has been set before her, she never recognizes as gluttony her determination to get what she wants, however troublesome it may be to others. The real value of the quiet, unobtrusive work which the devil has been doing for years on this woman can be gauged by the way in which her belly now dominates her whole life. The woman is in what we may call the all-I-want state of mind. Have you ever done that? Have you ever returned something to the chef or to the restaurant to say, no, it's lukewarm, or no, I don't like it, it's toasted, I didn't ask for it toasted, I didn't want it that way? He ever refused to go to a particular cafe because there wasn't a, a good, healthy option for you or because the coffee was really bad and you don't drink anything but Colombian roasted batch brew? You ever gone off at a waitress or a waiter because they served you something that you didn't expect or didn't want? Such forms of gluttony are, are, are subtle and the pleasures that these things bring ranges from wanting a specific delicacy as that little old woman wanted, making life tough for the waitress and the hostess. And it goes from that to 
wanting to eat in a way that makes us feel good, guilt-free, low carbs, no sugar, makes us feel healthy in the end. At the center of both those subtle forms is a concern only for me. I either want what is a peculiar delicacy and I'll do whatever I can to get it or I refuse to eat anything except is low fat, no sugar, low carbs and it's insanely healthy. In that last example, we want what gluttons enjoy the pleasures of the table in abundance but we want them guilt-free with a clear conscience. The cost of this gluttony is not our waistline but our relationships with other people. We become a positive terror to the service industry and a burden to our friends and family around the dinner table. In both the extreme example and the subtle example, what this, what's going on there is that gluttony is making gods out of our stomachs, as we read in Philippians 3. It makes us more and more into pleasure seekers at the cost of how we view food, each other, and our relationship with God. And we see that in, in Corinthians 1. Sorry, 1 Corinthians 11. In what should be a holy feast as they observe uh, the Lord's Supper and remember Christ's death and resurrection and His coming again, remind themselves of the hope they have in Jesus. We read in verse 21, For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. We see that they've lost reverence for the meal they're eating. They've lost care for each other. And most importantly, they've lost the whole point of this meal was to be a meal of worship and remembrance for what God has done for them. And here, they're just satisfying their own taste buds, filling their own stomachs and enjoying getting all that they want. Gluttony, in this case, has corrupted what is this spiritual meal with the purpose of worship into what Paul would call of the flesh, sinful, entirely focused on the self. Gluttony is obsessed with the immediate pleasures of the table that food and drink brings. And in this case, gluttony has redirected our vision from upward towards God and His goodness to horizontally at the table and then therefore inwardly to our own bellies. Gluttony, in this case, tries to replace the spiritual reality that we need God with food and drink itself. Gluttony would have us think that salvation is found in eating and drinking well. And in our culture, we believe that when we turn to the bottle to cope with depression. We believe that promise when we eat lollies and junk food and fast food to deal with stress and anxiety. That's my one that I struggle with the most. That's how I cope often. If I'm stressed, I'll go to Coles and get a block of chocolate and eat my feelings away. We believe that promise when it takes forever to decide what we want to eat because we don't want to miss out on the best thing, the best cafe, the best restaurant in this location. We refuse to eat anything with sugar or fat in it because our salvation is found in being healthy, fit, and good-looking. But its betrayal is felt deep. We left feeling dissatisfied. Our hunger might be filled, but we'll be hungry again. Our taste buds might be satisfied, but they won't be satisfied tomorrow and we'll need to taste again. And the same things won't satisfy us. The same things won't fill us enough. We'll need more and more and more. More coffee, more nice food, 
healthier food, whatever it might be. It attempts, what gluttony is trying to do is it attempts to fill a void in our heart that can only be filled by a deep intimacy and connection with God, the God who made us. Gluttony in the end is aimed at the spiritual longings of the heart. And it attempts to satisfy the longings of the heart by stuffing the face. But as Rebecca DeYoung puts it, we end up stuffing our face and starving our heart. So how do we stop gluttony? How do we fight it from letting the pleasure we gain from food and drink run wild in a way that affects our relationships with each other, with the food we eat, and with the God that we worship? I'm going to suggest two practical things that we can do to help us fight gluttony. But these practices need to be done in light of who we are as God's people. It's not about the power of the will, but being transformed by the grace of God that will help us to fight gluttony. There's something about Jesus' death and resurrection and the kind of people he's making us into be, people like himself, that determines the way we eat and drink today in our culture. So the things to help us fight gluttony are fasting, and feasting. Firstly, fasting. Fasting has always been a big thing in Christian history, in church history, and it's been done throughout. People have done it, especially at the time of Lent in Easter, leading up to Jesus' death and resurrection. But in our modern evangelical context, it's kind of dropped off a little bit as a spiritual practice. I grew up in an Anglican church, and I was never taught about fasting, really. I never practiced it, except for the 40-hour famine. It wasn't something that was important to our church. And when I asked about it, everyone just said, oh no, it's not important. You don't need to do it anymore. It's fine. But I believe that's to my own detriment that I haven't fasted because fasting, the goal of it is not some ritualistic observance to gain favor with God. The goal of fasting is to help us to recognize the place of food and drink in our life, to stop us from replacing the God of heaven with the God of stomach. In fasting, two things happen. Firstly, we learn to appreciate food and drink as gifts of God's grace. Funnily enough, Katie and I, in the month of May, as you know, if you've been following us on Instagram, we have been fasting from alcohol, coffee, soft drink, anything except for water as our beverages for the month. And it was really difficult. It was really hard. In you know, the first few days, we had the headaches. I had nausea uh, from the caffeine withdrawals. And so it was difficult. The week after that, I was getting bouts of tiredness around 10.30 a.m. and 3 p.m. Normally when I would get coffee at those times. And so it was a struggle to get through. But we managed after two weeks, we felt really fresh, really good on our way to making it throughout the whole month. I went to, uh, me and Katie went to our par my parents' place uh, one evening and my dad cracked open a beer bottle and he was like taunting me with it saying ah oh, sucked in you can't drink beer oh, I can't ha 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 and I was you know that was okay though I wasn't really phased by that because you know I was going strong two weeks in I'm fine I'm good then my mum gets a glass and she begins to pour her beer into the glass and the moment that pale ale hits the glass the citrus hits my nostrils and all of a sudden I've never, never smelt something so incredible in my life and all I want to do is drink of beer that I haven't drunk in about two or three weeks time and so I'm longing to drink it and I almost gave in but I didn't, made it way through. Here's the thing, 
I've never actually appreciated how good beer smells. Never once in my life. And I, I never appreciate the fact that the smell adds to the flavor of what I'm drinking. And I don't think I ever would have appreciated it unless I had fasted from it. Took a time away from it to learn how good beer is as a gift of God's grace. We seem to think, I think, that fasting is there to help us to stop us from loving food. But that's not true. It's the exact opposite. Fasting helps us to rightly love food and to appreciate food and drink as gifts of God's grace. We choose to fast from them so that we might learn that these come from God. These are His provision, not to be worshipped, but to be eaten and drink and drunk in thanksgiving for who He is and what He's done and what He's given us. But at the moment we begin to feel hungry, the moment we begin to drink, or sorry, feel thirsty, we don't break our fast. Instead, what we do is that we aim our hunger and our thirst to desire something greater than food and drink. Desire something more satisfying. That's the second thing that fasting does. Fasting helps us, reorients us towards desiring the kingdom of God. We read in Matthew 4, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You could say at the heart of gluttony is the belief that man does live on bread alone. Jesus demonstrates that despite how physically hungry he is, it's not bread that sustains and satisfy him. It's God. It's his word. And that's what fasting does to us. Fasting reminds us the one who truly fills our hunger, the one who truly satisfies us. It's God. And he feeds us graciously in his word. We read in, in Matthew 5 that we are to hunger and thirst for righteousness. The righteousness of the kingdom. In Matthew 6, Jesus teaches us not to worry about what we'll eat, but instead to seek first the kingdom of God, knowing he will provide. Because we live in such a culture where we can have food and drink in abundance, and immediately we have apps that deliver food for us to our doorstep, we can go out and have a just a choice of whatever we wanted, every kind of delicacy in manly. Fasting reminds us in the West that it is still God who provides. It's still God who is the one who sustains us, even if our culture would form us to think that actually it's us. Fasting reminds us that God is the one who sustains us. It trains our hearts and keeps them in check by stopping them from making God out of our own stomach. It reminds us and ingrains our very being that I don't live on bread alone. I don't live on coffee alone. I don't live on pizza alone or low-carb, no-sugar, fat-free meals alone, but on every word that comes from God. And at some point, fasting must be broken. It can't, we can't perpetually fast. It must give way, though, to feasting. And feasting is always done with other people. 
So if fasting helps us to learn that the food and drink we enjoy are gifts to be thankful for, that redirects our hunger towards desiring righteousness and godliness and the kingdom that is coming, then the practice of fa- feasting sorry, after fasting is a tangible demonstration of the kingdom that is coming. As we eat together and drink together in a fellowship of love and grace, we practice the way in which things will be when the king returns. And we are invited to recline at the table. To avoid the the traps of gluttony, we don't need to eat less at the dinner table. We need to have a bigger vision for the dinner table as a place to experience the life-changing grace of God in Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God throughout all of the Gospels is always described as a wedding feast, as a banquet, as a dinner party, a place in which the prostitutes and the outcasts are invited into, a place of which anyone could come and experience the grace of God and be filled with his presence and filled with joy and hope as they feast with him at his table in his kingdom. And we see these glimpses, these moments throughout the Gospels where people come to feast with Jesus and their lives are changed forever. Jesus meets Levi, a tax collector. Levi is transformed by the grace of God in Luke 4 and says, well, I'm going to throw a party. All my mates are going to come along and I'm going to invite Jesus to come as well so they can experience his grace at my feast. In Luke 19, we meet a man called Zacchaeus and Jesus invites himself over to his place to have lunch with him, to have a feast with him. And we have no idea what happens at that feast. We know Zacchaeus is a bad person. He cheats people, he robs them of their money as a tax collector. But he comes out and we read this, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Gluttony blinds us to the reality that this amazing food and drink, these gifts of God's creation that he has given us, can achieve something far greater than filling our stomachs or satisfying our taste buds. That when we come together around the table, we can enjoy life-changing grace of God in which all kinds of people can come and feast and enjoy. When our feasting seeks to reflect the kingdom of God that is coming, our table becomes a place in which all kinds of people can come to experience this life-changing grace. It becomes a demonstration of the joy and love and the peace that is on offer in this kingdom, a place of salvation for those who are lost. Our world has lost the art of dinner parties. People just eat and drink in front of their TVs alone at night. Families just order takeaway, order in microwave meals. They get on the couch in front of the TV and eat and don't say a word to each other. We've lost the art of eating and drinking around the table together, speaking and doing life together. That is the vision of the kingdom of God and what the gospel does to those and to our eating and drinking to those who believe in him. Our dinner tables provide a place, an opportunity for the Zacchaeuses and the Levites in our world to come and experience the salvation of God. 
for neighbors and strangers to come and experience the hospitality and the love of the kingdom that is coming in Jesus. When we choose to feast and make our tables reflective of the table in God's kingdom, we hunger not to be filled by food and the pleasures that it brings, but the pleasure of seeing our table filled with all kinds of people to share life with and the hope of Jesus with. We desire not for our taste buds to be satisfied, but for the satisfaction that comes in doing life together. We enjoy not feeling guilt-free because we are eating low-carb, low-fat, no-sugar meals that make us physically healthy. No, we feel guilt-free and have a clear conscience because we eat and drink together, giving thanks to the God who has saved us from our sin and give us hope for all eternity. Not to say, though, that, that as we eat and drink, that you should be only serving up gruel to people at the table. We ought to have the best food, the best drink, because these are gifts of God's creation. We ought to come together eating great meals together, drinking good wine, having dessert as well. But we do so with a bigger vision than the, than the pleasure of the food itself but with the pleasure that it comes in, in bringing people together around the table in thanksgiving to the God who has saved us and provides for all we need. Our feasts are not only a demonstration of that kingdom that is coming, a foretaste of that kingdom, but it's also a demonstration that, or how we ought to long for that kingdom as well. We must be careful not we don't confuse the sign with the reality. Our feasts are a sign of a greater reality that is coming. We need to feast in a way that continues to help us to practice the longing for this kingdom. And there's no better way to do this than in the Lord's Supper. The Supper that is the Lord's Supper, it's a feast of celebration of what Christ has done for us in the cro- on the cross his death and resurrection, that we have the forgiveness of sins, is transformative as we tangibly experience his grace in our life in that moment we eat and drink together. But it's also a feast of longing, a feast of anticipation as we eat and drink until he comes again. In some sense, our feasting is never over. As we live in this moment between now and when the kingdom comes, our feasting will always be a taste of the reality that is coming. The difference between gluttony and this kind of feasting is that one attempts to be satisfied with the pleasures of food and drink now in the present, whilst the other eats and drinks, anticipating the feast that is coming in God's kingdom that's going to bring full satisfaction and joy. Because man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So to conclude, I have a challenge for you this week. With your growth groups or close friends, aimed to fast from one meal a day, breakfast, lunch, or dinner, doesn't matter, aim to fast from one meal a day. And when the hunger begins to set in for you, when you begin to be thirsty for a particular drink you'd have at that meal, instead of breaking your fast in that moment and eating and drinking, instead aim your hunger towards desiring the things of the kingdom, righteousness, godliness, desire and pray for the kingdom to come in your life, in where you live, in Balgala and beyond. 
pray that you will long for what truly satisfies the word of God instead. Let your hunger teach you of what truly satisfies. Not food, not drink, but the word of God. And as you do that, as you pray, as you suffer in your hunger, you will see how the Spirit can transform your life and work in you to make you long after the things of God and not the things of this world. And then, let me encourage you, come to the end of the week and have a feast with friends in your growth groups. Feast together. Give thanks for the food and the drink that God provides. Make sure you have the best food, the best wine, the best beer, the best soft drink, whatever it is you enjoy. Have dessert and make sure you eat and drink with glad hearts and longing for the kingdom that is coming as you get a glimpse, a foretaste of it now. Katie and I have begun fasting. We began on a Friday night and it's been hard. It's been a struggle for us. I love eating food um, and, and drinking at the time as well. But we have learned so much about ourselves and how much we need God and His kingdom, praying for His kingdom to come, praying that we would long and, and thirst for the things that truly matter, godliness and righteousness. And then this Thursday, we're going to break our fast with a feast. We're going to order the best pizza from Pocket Pizza. We're going to have wine. We're going to have beer. It's going to be an amazing. And you're all invited to it, by the way. I don't know how we're going to fit you all into our unit, but we'll make it happen. So that's my challenge to you. Fast one meal a day. And then this Thursday, if you wish, you are welcome to come to our place Thursday night to have pizza, to have wine, to have beer or soft drink, whatever it is, and to pray to experience the kingdom of God and to long for its coming in Jesus Christ.